This series contains descriptions of mistreatment of animals and strong language throughout. Please be advised. In January 2014, at Joe Exotic's three-way wedding, Jacqueline Thompson told Joe she knew a guy who might be able to solve his problems. He said he needed somebody that was really good with a gun that could take her out. And I said, you need a sniper. And he's like, why, you have one? And I said, actually, I do. It's my husband. He's a sniper. Mark Thompson was Jacqueline's then-husband. Then when Joe found out he was a sniper, he was calling Mark. And he asked me if I'd be interested in working apart for security. Mark was a stocky guy with a bald head and a small white mustache. He had worked as a sharpshooting instructor in the military. Two weeks later, Joe took Jacqueline and Mark to his favorite Mexican restaurant, along with about a dozen of his employees and friends. They all sat at a big round table in the middle of the restaurant. The wooden chairs were decorated with cacti and men in sombreros. He's F this and F that and that fucking bitch and all this stuff. And, you know, there's kids sitting right behind us at a table. And Joe just said, I don't care. It's, I, you know, it's America. There's free speech. Joe turned to Mark to talk about the job. He had said they'd always had trouble with PETA. And people climbing in the fences at night and, you know, trying to cause problems and stuff. He's like, I'm not going to go anywhere without my bodyguard. Mark agreed to protect Joe in the park. But there was more to the job, which Joe wanted to discuss privately. Joe and I walked outside and he goes, well, I understand you got some special skill set. Yes, I do. Well, I got a problem in Florida. Can you help me with it? I said, no, I can't. He's got this joking side and this serious side. Mark knew about Joe's beef with Carol from Joe's YouTube videos. He wasn't totally certain, but he figured this was Joe's joking side. I accepted the job, and we had to be out here in Oklahoma by spring break of that year. And they became really close really fast. A couple nights later, Joe invited them into the studio to watch him record a live video. Joe had on a white button-down shirt and a tan baseball cap. As always, his pistol was on his hip. And on this night, he had something else with him. Joe had this blow-up doll, and it was dressed like Carol Baskin. The doll was dressed in a blonde wig and a pink hat. Joe leaned into the camera. You want to know why Carol Baskin better never, ever, ever see me face-to-face? Ever, ever, ever again. Joe turned to the doll. That is how sick and tired of this shit I am. And he blew her brains out. The wig and hat went flying into the air as the doll deflated. And then Mark told him after the show that he was furious. He's like, everybody's going to be looking at you if anything happens to that woman because of what you just did. He's like, you went way overboard. Mark says Joe never said anything again about taking care of his little Florida problem. At least, not to him. Later, he would discover that overboard is exactly where Joe wanted to go. I think he was actively still looking. And little did I know, he had already found someone. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? 
Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead. He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm Nikki Boyer, host of The Daily Smile. It's me against Ross Matthews, you know, from RuPaul's Drag Race. My heart's racing. I think it's just because it's hot in my closet. That's why I don't go in closets, Nikki. (laughs) It's been literally decades. Listen to 80s movie madness on The Daily Smile on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. From Wondery, I'm Robert Moore, and this is Joe Exotic. Tell me his name now. I'll put him six feet underground. This is episode five, Straight to Hell. By 2017, Joe had transferred ownership of the zoo to his business partner, Jeff Lowe. It was a way for Joe to avoid paying Carol Baskin and Big Cat Rescue the money he owed them. Jeff was away from the zoo a lot. He would regularly check into hotels on the Las Vegas Strip, like the MGM Grand and the Luxor. With him was his girlfriend, Lauren, a slender young redhead with pale skin, Rolling a suitcase behind them, they would walk through the casino and take the elevator up to their suite. According to Joe, they'd then unzip the suitcase, where inside was a tiger cub. And that's how they got them in the hotels without getting caught. For $2,000, wealthy clients could book the hotel room to play with the cub. Jeff, by the way, denies they ever put tigers in suitcases. He says they used a Louis Vuitton dog carrier. But they both agree this was all part of Jeff's plan to make the GW Zoo profitable again. When Jeff took over, he instructed Joe to keep cranking out cubs. Jeff spent most of his time in Vegas, where he rented a ranch house in a fancy gated community. He told a local reporter that he threw secret parties for his rich clients and showcased the cats on private planes. Because he was away so much, he needed someone to help look after the zoo. And he had just the man. When he arrived, he had nothing but a fucking little suitcase and a chainsaw. He was supposedly in the tree business in South Carolina. That's what he'd done. He had a shaved head and a teardrop tattoo on his left cheek. His name was Alan Glover. He worked as a groundskeeper and maintenance man at the zoo. Alan had gone to prison for assault and battery in South Carolina. That didn't seem to bother Joe. He would treat Alan to dinner or offer to drive him to the grocery store. Other times, they would take Joe's guns out to a vacant piece of land he owned for some target practice. On one of these outings, Joe taped explosives to the side of an old water heater, then walked back about 50 yards, kneeled down, and looked through the scope of his white AR-15 rifle. The explosion leaves a big white cloud of smoke. Tell me I couldn't pick somebody off from across the river. (laughs) After work one night, 
Joe pulled Alan aside. It was about 11 p.m., and they were standing on the front porch of the gift shop. Joe made Alan an offer. I'll give you $5,000 if you go to Tampa and kill Carol Baskin. And if you pull it off, I'll take care of you for life. Alan told him, I can get it done. Meanwhile, Joe was on another mission. Our unemployment problem in this state is broke. People don't want to work because it's too easy not to work. He was running for governor of Oklahoma. This wasn't his first run for political office. He'd actually launched a campaign for president back in 2016 as a write-in candidate. Now he was competing to be on the libertarian ticket. Joe was not a libertarian. His political ideology, I can't, I can't explain it. I really can't. Joe's just like a Donald Trump on meth. Josh Dial was Joe's campaign manager. When Joe hired him, Josh initially had high hopes for Joe's candidacy. After all, Joe could be charming. On Josh's first day of work, Joe brought Josh to the front porch of the gift shop, where the whole staff was assembled. Joe introduces me, um, says, this is Josh, he's going to be the campaign manager uh, for the governor's run. And the only thing that was said was by Travis. And that was two words, bad idea. Travis Maldonado was Joe's husband. He was a tattooed 23-year-old skater kid from California. Tall and muscular, he had wild black hair and a mischievous smile. Travis was like a light that bounced around the zoo. Made everybody happy. Everybody loved Travis. Cheryl Maldonado was Travis's mom. Joe had taken Travis's last name. Legally, he was now Joseph Maldonado. But his yard signs said, Joe fucking exotic. On October 6th, 2017, while Joe was away running errands, Josh was sitting in the office updating Joe's Facebook page. Travis walked in and plopped down in an office chair about 10 feet from Josh. Travis was expecting a package to arrive any minute. But while he's waiting, it was nothing but bitching. He was nonstop complaining about, about you know, how, how he feels like he's in a cage. Joe doesn't let him get a job. Joe won't let him hang out with people. Joe won't let him have friends. And right after he got done saying that, he pulled out his new gun, you know, and he pointed it at me. And I cussed him out. I said, what the hell are you pointing a gun at me? Don't you ever point a gun at me again, Travis. Travis dropped the clip out of the pistol and placed it on the desk. He said, don't worry, it's a Ruger, and held the gun to his temple. Said, don't you know a Ruger won't fire without a clip? And the second he got done with the word clip, he pulled the trigger. The gun fired. And, uh, you know, it went straight through temple to temple, uh, right into the wall. His head fell back, and his Adam's apple was bobbing up and down. So, but blood was spurting out of his temple, like, like someone had a super soaker in his head and was shooting it out. So I thought it was a joke. You know, it didn't, it looked so real that it looked fake. And he was even still looking at me before his head fell back. And, you know, I could see the life go out of his eyes and, but it was, it was, um, it was a nightmare. 
Cheryl, Travis's mom, had moved out to Oklahoma to be near him. When she heard the news, she rushed to the zoo. There was a crowd gathered outside the gift shop. It's the worst day of my life. I wanted to go kiss him goodbye. I wanted to say goodbye. It was so bad. But I didn't want to see him like that. Joe arrived shortly after. He was just just screaming, screaming and bawling. And it was very, very sad, uh, very sad. Travis's corpse was already in a body bag, but Joe wanted to see him one last time. So they unzipped the bag down to Travis's chest. And uh, he had a hole in each temple. It, it, it didn't damage his head much. I mean, they were little tiny holes that went so fast. And he had blood blood coming out of his nose. And uh, he was super cold. Joe gave him a kiss and zipped the bag shut. One night, not long after, Joe was at home alone. He was sitting in a chair crying. In his hand was his 357 Magnum. He pointed it at the TV, pointed it at the couch. Then he put the gun to his head. I was, I was literally going to kill myself. And pulled the trigger. Nothing. Joe called his ex-husband, John Finley, sobbing, and asked him to come over. And John Finley found me and, and took the gun uh, and opened the gun up, and he was like, Jesus Christ. He says, this bullet didn't fire. The hammer hit the bullet, and then and then the, the primer, and did not go off. In the weeks after Travis's funeral, Joe wandered around the zoo with a glazed expression. He became convinced that he felt Travis's presence everywhere, in animals, in other people, in the clouds. But the most outrageous one was he believed that Travis had come back as bees. And I don't mean one bee. He thought that Travis came back as a full swarm of bees because on the day Travis died, the bees happened to be migrating. And one landed on on all of us, actually, that day. Call it what you want. Some people call that God. Some people call that reincarnation. I call that coincidence. But Joe called that Travis. He just wasn't the same person afterwards. I mean, he lost his mind. He lost it. And I don't think he ever got it back. Joe took that bullet that didn't fire, made a necklace from it, and wore it around his neck. A reminder, he said, of how things must end. Hey, fellas, I want you to take a second and look down. When was the last time you shaved your junk? It's been a while, don't lie. And hey, I get it. You'd think with all the extra time I've got on my hands right now, I'd have gotten better at taking care of that situation, but I'm still dealing with nicks and cuts. Our sponsor, Manscaped, knows that when giving your big cat a haircut, safety is key, and they are dedicated to making sure your jungle gets tamed. 
That's why the Manscaped engineering team has perfected their third-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 3.0. It features a soft ceramic blade set at the perfect angle to prevent manscaping accidents. Millions of balls are about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skincare technology. One of the coolest features is the LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. Now, if you're a true Tiger King fan, you can safely make tiger stripes in your pubes. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code EXOTIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use code EXOTIC. Now get in there and tame that jungle. Hey guys, I'm Nikki Boyer, host of The Daily Smile. It's me against Ross Matthews. You know from RuPaul's Drag Race? We debate 80s movies. Which one was the best? Now listen, Rossi, we have pretty similar tastes, so we might agree on a few, but I have a feeling that may be a conflict or two in the future. I hope you could take the heat. Well, you know, we have similar tastes, but you know, it's different. Like I have good taste and you have that haircut. <laughs> <laughs> listen to 80s movie madness on The Daily Smile on Wondery Plus, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the chaos following Travis's death, Joe's plans to kill Carol Baskin entered a new phase. He and Alan Glover, the maintenance man with the teardrop tattoo, looked over aerial maps of Big Cat Rescue and discussed various methods of killing Carol. Joe proposed booby-trapping something with explosives, like her mailbox, and then shooting it from afar, like they'd practiced. But Alan said that wouldn't work. Because he was a convicted felon, if he was found with a gun, he'd go straight to jail. Joe also suggested that Alan wear a camouflage suit, the kind snipers wear, and hide beside the bike path Carol took to work. When she rode by, he could pick her off with a crossbow. But they eventually settled on Alan's suggestion. He would do it with a big knife and cut off her head. I'm feeling On November 6th, Joe sent Alan down to Dallas on a little mission. He told him to go to a shop where they sold fake IDs. Alan picked out one from Arizona with the name John Allen McDowell. The plan was for Alan to use the ID to rent a motel in Tampa under a fake name. That way, there wouldn't be a paper trail after he killed Carol. On his way home, Alan stopped at a store called Tiger Liquidation to see the owner, James Gerritsen. Gerritsen was a pudgy man with narrow, shifty eyes. He'd recently bought a couple tigers off of Joe and had been hanging around the zoo a lot. Joe sent Alan his way to make sure the ID was foolproof. Alan handed over the ID to Gerritsen, and Gerritsen carefully filed off the lettering on the back that read, Entertainment Purposes Only. Three days later, Gerritsen dropped by the zoo. He and Alan talked in front of the gift shop. Gerritsen wanted to know if this was really going to happen. He asked, how long are you going to be vacationing down in Florida? Alan said, as long as it takes. Make sure he pays you real good. He's going to be in my pocket forever. Then Alan sighed, I'm going to hell anyway. James replied, I think we're all going. 
I'm going straight there. I have no chance. Alan said that once he went to Tampa, no one would hear from him until news of the murder was on TV. He added, and if anybody rats me out and I get popped, everybody that they love, I'll have them burnt alive. Every fucking single person. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. They will be burnt the fuck alive. Before Alan left, Joe handed him an envelope stuffed with $3,000 in cash. He also took Alan's old cell phone and mailed it to Jeff Lowe. The plan was to have Jeff use it to periodically send people text messages from Vegas to create an alibi. Joe was confident. He told Gerritsen over the phone, as long as he don't get caught red-handed, I think we got this. But if they bust him red-handed, me and Jeff got our story down to where we fired the motherfucker and he just went off the deep end. Then, Alan was gone. Two weeks went by and Carol was clearly still alive. On December 8th, James Gerritsen walked into Joe's office with a backup plan. Behind him was a man named Mark Williams. According to Gerritsen, Mark had just been released from prison and he was a professional hitman. While they chatted, a skunk prowled under the desks. Talk turned to Carol. Joe complained, this bitch has cost us almost three quarters of a million dollars in lawyers already. Mark asked Joe if he had any info on Carol. Joe laughed, how much do you need? Then he pulled out a folder, bulging with documents, and slammed it down on the table. Joe suggested that Mark Williams drive up to Carol in a mall parking lot, shoot her, and drive off. Joe asked, so how much does something like that run? Mark said it would cost about $10,000, half up front. Easy, Joe said. You just sell some tigers. He added, that bitch has just got to go away. All this time, Carol Baskin had been getting increasingly nervous. To get to work in the morning, she biked from her home to Big Cat Rescue. Normally, she took a quiet bike path that took about an hour. But one morning, in August 2017, she was running late for a staff meeting. The only way I was going to make it in 30 minutes was to go straight down Sheldon Road. And there's a lot of traffic on Sheldon Road. She biked down the busy four-lane highway at rush hour. She had just reached a stoplight at a crowded intersection about 10 minutes from the sanctuary when she saw a small white car turning towards her. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he can't see me. And if he was coming kind of fast, and so I was afraid he was going to hit my bike. And so I'm looking for a way that I can back out, you know, to, to let him see that I was there. And instead of him doing that, the passenger door opens and this guy leaps out of the car. And I mean, this guy looked like a thug right out of central casting. A big man wearing dark sunglasses, a sleeveless shirt, and chains around his neck. And he's coming straight for me. Carol frantically pedaled away. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't watch horror shows, but it seems like every scary scene, the person's running from the bad guy and they keep looking back and the bad guy's gaining on them. And so I was like, I am not looking back. I'm just gonna go as fast as I can possibly go for as long as I can go. By the time she reached the next intersection, 
Carol had lost the guy, but she was still pretty freaked out. And I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) I thought for sure it was somebody that Joe had hired to kill me. But there's been so many situations like that where I'm just kind of like in this fight or flight mode. Ever since Joe had begun broadcasting his threats on YouTube, Carol had been on high alert. I'm the most dangerous exotic animal owner on this planet right now. And before you bring me down, it is my belief that you will stop breathing. Got that? I really felt like he was a physical threat to my body and was trying to do something to stop that. And then there were the disturbing phone calls. Hi, Carol. Uh, you really got to call me back. There's so much stuff. Ashley Webster worked at Joe's Zoo. He was actually talking about paying someone to kill you. He tried to get me to do it. I'm not going to fucking do that. I would never hurt anybody. He was offering like a couple of thousand dollars. I feel like your life is in danger. She said her father had been a police officer. And so I thought, well, here's somebody who's finally going to do the right thing, call the right people. Another had come from Jacqueline Thompson, the woman whose husband worked as Joe's security guard. Jacqueline had had a falling out with Joe and decided to contact Carol. She told Carol she overheard a woman from Florida offer to help inject Carol with a horse tranquilizer, throw her in the trunk of a car, and then dump her body in a swamp. And so I've always been a little nervous about the fact that there are these people living here right in my backyard that have such evil intent. Most of the time, when Carol got a call about extreme threats from Joe, she told the police. She even tried to get a restraining order against Joe. But nothing ever came of it. Until one day, in late 2017, Howard was sitting at his desk when he got a call from a law enforcement officer. He informed Howard there was an imminent threat. They were monitoring it and didn't want to overly worry us that they felt that we needed to know that Joe was actively trying to hire someone to kill Carol. Now that I hear that there's somebody that is an imminent threat to kill me, everybody that you see starts looking like that person. She stopped riding her bike. She put up security cameras. She varied her schedule. She hired a bodyguard for certain occasions. And she started keeping a pistol in her car and another one by her bedside. Hey, podcast listeners. My name is Justin Long, and I host another podcast in case you were looking for one. Uh, I talk to people. And afterwards, my brother and I, we talk about the people that I talk to. This week, I talked to Joel McHale uh, from the show Community. Joel is also in many other things. He's a fun, he's a great talker. So if you want to hear me talk to him, talk, 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 listen to Life is Short. You can listen to it wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. In April 2018, Jeff Lowe and his girlfriend Lauren moved back to Oklahoma. Jeff had just been arrested in Las Vegas for running an unlicensed cub petting operation and failing to appear in court. 
he and Lauren moved into a wooden cabin at the zoo. From the outside, they were living a glamorous life. You know, this is one of the perks of being a tiger at my park. You get to ride to the vet in a Ferrari. Right? You ready to go? You ready to go? But in private, things were tense. The zoo was strapped for cash, and both Jeff and Joe were now embroiled in lawsuits with Carol. To make matters worse, while Jeff was away, Joe had been getting rid of animals at the zoo. Some he sold or gave away. A few he just killed off. Joe had gotten so desperate, he even reached out to one of the very animal rights organizations he'd been so against. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Peter was helping me. You know, my, my biggest rival in the world, even above Carol Baskin, I've become friends with and, and were helping me close, close it up. Joe told PETA he was looking to get out of the zoo business altogether and move on with his life. He donated three bears, two baboons, and more than 30 tigers to the organization. But around the same time, he told a friend that he simply had too many tigers for the zoo to ever be an efficient moneymaker. I need to get down to about 50, he said. Just my breeders. One month after Jeff moved back to the zoo, things came to a head. He stormed into Joe's office. I'm just sick of it, Joe. I came here to bail your ass out. You would be fucking who knows where without me. And you even said it before I went to Las Vegas. Jeff was secretly recording the argument. He accused Joe of embezzling the zoo's money for his political campaign. It says campaign paid by the park. That's illegal. I'm so sick of seeing your fucking face on every goddamn thing in this place. I could puke. I've heard going to jail. so many people. Don't ever talk about me that way or my husband. It's just like the other night when you told her to shut the fuck up. You forged my name 20 fucking times on cash checks. At one point, Jeff punched a filing cabinet. You're not gonna fuck me, you're not gonna put me in trouble, and then treat me like shit, asshole. I everything covered, Jeff. Jeff accused Joe of committing fraud. And worse. So you might want to burn this place down like you did the fucking alligator thing. Joe said nothing. He didn't argue. He didn't even deny it. I'll move. Move! Then do it. And I'll run this park the right way. Well, I'm going to ask you. Tell me if I need to call and have my animals moved. I can have my shit out of here with two phone calls. Okay. The final straw came one day in June. Joe euthanized two tigers and was planning to euthanize more. Jeff was out to dinner with Lauren when he got a call about what Joe was up to. He hurried back to the zoo and confronted Joe. He said if Joe didn't stop killing cats, the next needle goes in your arm. He told Joe, get the fuck off my property. Josh Dial was in the office stuffing envelopes for Joe's campaign. Joe burst in. And then he started uh, going through his office, just deleting everything. It was frantic. It was like, uh, you know, like an embassy being raided. I mean, he was shredding stuff. He was burning stuff. He was throwing stuff away. He was going on computers and erasing hard drives. Um, So whatever Jeff said to him scared the shit out of him. Afterward, Joe gathered the employees in the gift shop for his final farewell. Joe was just crying like we never hadn't seen him cry since Travis had died, you know. Um, and, you know, he was just bawling. Um, 
And, you know, he told everyone of us he loved us and um, that, you know, he'd look out for us. And, uh, uh, you know, he gave us all hugs and, you know, gave us some kisses and he walked out the back door. So um, there was no drive off into the sunset. I mean, he was just there one day. Next morning, he was gone. Joe never came back. He was headed to Florida. Less than a week after Joe had left the zoo, Jeff Lowe made a phone call. Hey. Hey, let me turn my speak up real quick. It was to Alan Glover, the man with the teardrop tattoo, the one who had been last seen heading to Florida to kill Carol. Jeff says he'd been trying to reach Alan for seven months. He'd been messaging him on Facebook, calling old numbers. Now, he finally had him on the phone. And Jeff wanted Alan to tell him how everything went down with Joe. So Joe, says Alan, will you please go to Florida and what? Kill that fucking lady. He he was going to give me $5,000 in cash. How did you go to to Tampa? I went to Tampa. I never went to Tampa, Alan said. Oh, you didn't go? I didn't go to fucking Tampa. What the hell I want to go there for? Oh, so... That that would cost me money. All right, because... All right. So you just you just blew him off. You just I wasn't going to kill no motherfucking body. All right. Alan said Joe mistreated him. That's why he left the zoo. I saw a fucking opportunity. This right. motherfucker's going to give me five thousand fucking dollars to get the fuck away from him. Right. Bye. Jeff would eventually post his recording of this call online. By then, everything would have changed. They know all about Joe. He's in some serious trouble. And if they've been watching him, they know everything. They've heard stuff. They know that. So what I recommend strongly is you just, you you don't want to be on Joe's side when this comes down. They know everything. But who were they? From Wondery, this is episode five of six of Joe Exotic, a story about two people who want to save animals and destroy each other. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com. If you're listening on a smartphone, Tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed, and a link to my article about Joe Exotic in New York Magazine. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors. Supporting them helps us offer our shows for free. And thank you. Joe Exotic was written and reported by me, Robert Moore. Associate producer is Chris Siegel. Story editor is Josh Block. Produced by Heather Schwering. Sound design by Jeff Schmidt. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Bunga Bunga, a new Wondery original miniseries hosted by Whitney Cummings, tells the story of how one master manipulator hypnotized an entire country. 
In the 1990s, Silvio had had enough of the government's rules and regulations, so he decided to run for prime minister. If you can't beat the law, change the law. And thus his legacy would become an explosive tale of what happens when private business interests and political interests compete head to head. For his entire political career, Silvio spewed lies and propaganda to what was true and what was opinion was a matter of opinion. And while everyone was distracted, he threw Playboy Mansion-style parties, used his mafia ties to blackmail government officials, and rewrote the laws to protect and enrich himself. Until two words brought his entire empire crashing down. Bunga Bunga. Subscribe to Bunga Bunga on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app.